Good morning, saints. We are in a series examining the aspects of the glory of God. We are taking time to look at the perfections of God, as well as concepts that are intrinsically tied to the glory of God. I cannot think, or I can think of few themes as edifying and comforting to muse upon than the glory of God. We have said that the glory of God really is the sum total of God's attributes, of his excellencies, of his perfections. One attribute that we have discussed is God's holiness. This means that God is completely other than. He is perfected in his moral purity and righteousness. There is none like him. This morning we examine a perfection of God that is most worthy of our attention. It will convict us. And it should cause us to be very sober-minded. But ultimately, it will cause us to marvel all the more at the beauty and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the love that God has shown us. I'm speaking this morning about the wrath of God. The very mention of this for some people will naturally cause fear and anxiety, just thinking about it. It has certainly been misunderstood and misapplied over time. The wrath of God is intrinsically tied to the holiness of God. It should never be merely a side note. It should not be something that we seek to ignore, downplay, or even make excuses for. If we are honest, many people today who even profess the name of Christ will seek to, cut, to completely cut this out from their Bibles. One cannot faithfully teach God's truth without addressing the wrath of God. From the onset, let me say that the wrath of God provides a framework for the old rugged cross. It is the setting for the advent of Christ that we will soon be celebrating. It is the backstory to the blood of Jesus that flowed so freely for you and for me. And I will also say this, nothing, absolutely nothing in your Bible, especially your New Testament, will make any sense without Understanding the wrath of God. The wrath of God is, is a pervasive theme in both the Old and the New Testaments. It plays predominantly even in eternity. I would suggest that many of us have an inadequate understanding or grasp of this arresting perfection of God. Before we trace it in Scripture... And show some examples. Let's begin by having a working definition and an understanding of the wrath of God. First, what it is not. God's wrath or anger is not unpredictable anger. 
Many of you grew up with parents or coaches or teachers that you always had to walk on eggshells with. You never knew when they would lash out. You never knew when you would be the recipient of their anger. If that is true of you, I do not need to tell you the emotional toll that that has taken on your very soul. God's wrath is not capricious or irrational. Lashing out, requiring random acts of appeasement from God's subjects. I am here to tell you that God is not like that. He is not unpredictable. He is not random. Far from it. He is patient. And he is merciful. And he is long-suffering. The wrath of God has been defined as the right and righteous response of God to sin. The word used by Paul in the original Greek in the New Testament denotes God's strong indignation towards sin and evil with an eye to retribution. Now, keep in mind how your New Testament opens. John the Baptist, a sterling example of how to run a seeker-sensitive service, said this in Matthew chapter 3, just a couple pages into your New Testament, beginning in verse 7. But when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The theme of wrath from the very beginning. John the Baptist, as you know, conducted a baptism of repentance. Many of the rank and file were baptized, confessing their sins. But when he saw the religious leaders approaching, he reserved his harshest words for them. Now, later on in Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus would make clear why John the Baptist did not mince words with the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23. This is Jesus speaking. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you travel across land and sea to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. That's Jesus. You see, Jesus did not come bringing merely a message of moralism or do-goodism. From Jesus' own lips, the message of the gospel has massive implications. 
As you read through the book of Acts and the epistles and Revelation, we see the apostles boldly proclaiming the truth and not watering down the message. As it says in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And further, the wages of sin is death. On the very first recorded evangelistic sermon, the Apostle Paul struck a note of sobriety when addressing the crowd at Pentecost. This is Acts chapter 2. At the very end of his scorching message, I would say, he says this, verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. This is literally how the church was started. It took root and it was built and constructed under fiery preaching from the unlikeliest of preachers. On this day when Peter spoke to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, no less than 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. They didn't know what hit them. Saints, that is not one isolated text taken out of context or incident. Peter was clear when he brought the gospel to the Gentiles. Ten chapters later, Acts chapter 10. Verse 40, Peter said, and he, God, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that this, that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness and that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the gospel now going to the Gentiles and it is predicated upon Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. Please note the seriousness with which Peter conducted himself when preaching the resurrection to a God-fearing Gentile household. Beloved, Paul was no less zealous and focused when he preached the gospel to the philosophizing, philosophizing Jew, uh, Gentiles in Athens. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Towards the end of his message to these Gentiles. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Resurrection, judgment. Saints. Do you see the consistency and the precision and the focus with which the apostles preached? This crowd loved 
exchanging the latest ideas about life and philosophy, Paul stood up and he cut through all of that banter. And he proclaimed the resurrection of King Jesus and the fact that he will judge the living and the dead. God's righteous indignation towards sin is the very foundation upon which the apostles preached. Now it is no secret that our culture prefers to do away with or completely ignore the reality of the wrath of God on sin or judgment. We have today what others call expressive individualism. These humanist ideologies underpinning culture's mood at the moment presuppose that there is no God to sin against to begin with. Other corners of so-called Christianity make God's love for the individual so affirming that it will rarely, if ever, call out sin. I must say this as clearly as I possibly can. One cannot teach the Bible, nor the major doctrines in the Bible, outside of the context of the wrath of God. So let's back up and look at the Old Testament for a moment. Our working proposition is that God's holiness prompts him to address, not ignore, sin and evil. Though he be long-suffering, his anger simmers and in his timing and in complete concert with all of his moral perfections, he will act. One of the first occurrences of this is found in Exodus chapter 22, or at least the word wrath. Exodus chapter 22, beginning in verse 21, we read this. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. How we treat people matters. When the vulnerable are mistreated, the Lord's righteous anger simmers. Two weeks ago, we highlighted the account of Nadab and Abihu in the book of Leviticus. They offered strange sacrifices to the Lord. They did not follow God's orders. Fire leapt out from the altar and the Lord killed them on the spot. These were Aaron's sons. And Aaron kept his peace. God was zealous for his holiness we noted that the New Testament opened with a similar scenario with Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead at the feet of the apostles, trying to pocket the offering money. God will not be mocked. Recall many other expression, expressions of wrath and judgment in the Old Testament. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, driven from the garden. The world and its population drowned in the flood, Genesis 6. 
Sodom and Gomorrah, Egyptians at the Red Sea, Israelites driving out the Canaanites, Israelites sent into captivity, and the list goes on. We cannot read God's word and miss the expressions of God's, of God's wrath regarding sin. Now, as we observe the expressions of God's wrath, we must be reminded of what we are told early on. Remember when we highlighted Moses two weeks ago. I want you to look at that passage again. This is Exodus chapter 34. Beginning in verse 6, we read this. Remember, Moses wanted to see the glory of God. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed his own name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Saints, this is truly what separates God's anger from man's anger. He does not just lash out. He is patient. Oh, so patient. And long-suffering. And I think many of us today are a testimony of God's patience. However, he will by no means clear the guilty. I realize this is not light material that we are going over this morning. In the Old Testament, where there was evil, God's wrath was seen. It was seen both with his people Israel and also those surrounding her. It was also seen with individuals such as Achan. Remember Achan? Achan sold the bacon. Um, who transgressed the holiness of God. While it is true that God has acted in specific situations all throughout history, I now want to spend the remainder of our time looking at the wrath of God and how it forms and shapes the gospel. The New Testament does not promise a pretty life for any of us. We live in a fallen world. As we follow Christ, we can expect persecution and kickback. But the overriding emphasis in the New Testament is the age to come. The sobriety of gospel preaching is found when we focus on eternity and not our passing lives. The gospel is not, was never intended to be something to make your life happy and make you rich or comfortable. So let's trace God's wrath as it pertains specifically to the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. The New Testament teaches us that before we knew him, we followed the way of this world and our thinking was darkened. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That is a clear statement. Now, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Few passages of scripture are so densely populated with gospel-rich terminology. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. You'll see I've highlighted some of these words. And we are justified by his grace as a gift. Now I want you to think through for a moment. If God in his holiness cannot ignore sin, that makes the gospel so beautiful. We, be, we get it, maybe on a deeper level. We are justified, declared righteous, declared not guilty, by his grace as a gift. That means we're not earning it ourselves. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redeem means to buy out of the marketplace, in this case, of sin and death and slavery to sin. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Tell me again, what does propitiation mean? It was a key word a while ago. Satisfaction. The wrath of God. The holy, righteous wrath of God on our sin is fully satisfied. Was it easy? Did he snap his fingers and say, okay, you're good. By his blood. The precious son of God who lived among us, died for us. The excruciating death. We get the word excruciating from the Latin from the cross. Excrucia from the cross. The agony associated with it. And we receive it by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Watch this. These are some of the most profound and beautiful words you will ever hear. That he might be just and simultaneously at the same time the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. At one and the same time, his holiness, his justice is intact. And his love and his mercy are poured out. So God, who is the just, justifies the sinner. It is removing God's wrath. The heart of the gospel is life-giving, is giving life when there was no life. 
It is removing God's wrath and condemnation and replacing it with glory and honor for the saints. It is transforming us from children of darkness to children of light. Saints, the very heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, became sin for you and for me. And he suffered the wrath, the full wrath of almighty God on sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took our place. Have you ever thought of the Garden of Gethsemane? Where Jesus, in anguish, he sweats drops of blood and he pleads, if there is any other way to do this, if there's any other way, would you take this cup away from me? Think about it. Followers of Christ over the centuries have died willingly for the gospel. They have done so courageously. They have done so literally singing praises. Why is it that the one that they're following shrunk back from such a thing? Saints, his death indeed was agonizing. But the one who is infinitely pure and holy, who has from eternity past lived with his heavenly father in perfect Union and fellowship. You know what was about to happen. Darkness in the middle of the day. When Christ himself became sin for us. He not only took your sin, he became sin. And the wrath of God was laid out upon him. This is the heart of the gospel. Most are familiar with John 3.16. It's our Sparks key verse. Do you know verse 18? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's the gospel. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of Of the only son of God. Saints judgment is not necessarily something in the future. But condemnation is now. Furthermore later in the same chapter as John 3.16. We have the last verse. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the son. Has eternal life. But whoever does not obey, there's a dynamic equivalence there. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. Watch this. And the wrath of God remains on him. That's John chapter three. Saints, the message of the gospel cannot be separated from the wrath of God. God's love for us is so wonderfully magnificent when we realize the truth about who Jesus is and why he came and what he has accomplished for us. He stood in our place before Almighty God. 
Do not think that the church is merely a social club or a place to help you do better in life or to make friends. The church is the household of God. It is the pillar of truth. It is where sinners are redeemed. It is where people are forgiven and they grow as they follow Christ. My friend, if you come here week in and week out, I have one question for you. Have you turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and taken Him as your Lord and Savior? Your parents' faith will not save you. Your friend's faith will not save you. You must come before the Lord Jesus Christ yourself personally and take Him as your Savior. So as we tie all this together, saints, there are four ways, actually five, I added one, there are five ways that the wrath of God should stimulate our thinking. Number one, when we contemplate the wrath of God, gratitude wells up within us. Oh, my sins, not in part but the whole, have been nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. Number two, surely, as we consider the wrath of God and judgment to come, we should be red hot in our service to God. So I ask you, are you sitting on the sidelines? If you are, get in the game. Serve God. Serve one another. Be active in working out your faith. Number three, the wrath of God should cause us to take inventory of our lives that we would walk soberly before the Lord. That we would not trifle with sin, nor occupy ourselves with lesser things. I invite you to turn to Colossians, very briefly, Colossians chapter 3. like to read verse 8. Talking about the ways in which we once lived, verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, etc. Put it away. Romans 12, a parallel passage to that, says leave room for God's wrath. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Don't undertake that yourself. I'd like to invite the men to come forward for communion. I do have one more as they're getting assembled. Finally, saints, the wrath of God will embolden our witness for Christ. When we contemplate, when we ponder the reality of that which we have long since been warned 
judgment. We should be emboldened in witnessing for Christ. So I ask you, when was the last time you shared the gospel with your neighbor, family members, co-workers, friends? I challenge you to pray and plan to share the gospel directly with one person this month. Like actually go there with words, not just kind deeds, words. Pray on it and act on it and do it. Y'all can go ahead and get these. I mentioned in the weekly email that... um, Our topic flows very well. It complements communion this morning. Communion is for those who have put their faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do this in memory. We remember what Christ has done for us. It's tactile. You can feel it. We remember that Christ has suffered on our behalf. We remember that he loves us. We remember that he's coming again. Take a few minutes, a few moments to reflect and to pray. As you are reminded of God's great love for you. And also. The life that God has called you to. My prayer this morning is that the weight, not only of the wrath of God, but the love of God, would be very much on your mind this morning. Scripture says, Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you join me, please? In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you join me, please? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, this morning we give you thanks.
we are deeply mindful that life can be very, very heavy. Challenges that press in. Heartaches and disappointment. Being hurt by others. Lord, thank you for this refuge. Thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That you sent your one and only son. Who lived among us. Who died for us. Who died for sinners. Father, we pray that if this message has not been clear before, that it will be crystal clear this morning. That Christ Jesus died for sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Father, we pray that today, even today, might be the day of salvation for some with us. That they would turn in repentance to you and put their faith fully and finally in Christ, who died for sinners and was raised to life and is now seated at your right hand. Oh, Lord, fill our hearts with gratitude and thanksgiving. You tell us to rejoice in you in all circumstances. We can only do that because of the gospel. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.